0: Good morning. Good morning. You're all very welcome, and it's wonderful to see your faces again and some faces that I haven't seen before. So, uh, welcome to all of you, and uh, thank you for your prayers for us on our uh, trip and our holiday. I'm sure many of you have been uh, away as well. We had a great time in the US uh, with Megan's uh, family, and before that, some time in uh, Northern Ireland with my parents. But as always, uh, it's good to be back as well. Uh, We did have a nice time, but it's good to be uh, back here where we belong again. Just a few things to mention before we start. First of all, the Sunday School is uh, restarting this morning, I believe, I didn't double check that. Uh, So uh, I will give you an opportunity to um, move, the Sunday School to move next door a, a little bit later in the service. And there'll also be a crash for the younger ones, uh, if you need that uh, this morning. And then just to let you know that we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. I'm not sure how clear that slide is coming out on the screen, but we will be starting a new series this evening on Nehemiah. So I hope that you can join us for that at six. And then just one more thing to mention, we have had a request for baptism which means that we may well be planning a baptism service in the relatively near future. So if you've been thinking about baptism or if you'd just like to find out more about it without any um, obligation to go ahead with that, then this would be a good time to talk to us about it. Maybe just ask one of the elders if you could have a chat with us. That's all I need to mention by way of information. We've come here to worship God. And so let's begin our time by bowing before him and remembering who he is. Let's pray. Lord God, we do bow in your presence because you are high and exalted. You are far above every other power and authority. You are Lord of all. And so we come to you with reverence, with appropriate fear. And we also come with confidence, great confidence, knowing that you welcome us when we come in Jesus' name. We look at Jesus and his death on the cross, and we can never doubt your great love for us. And we come also with expectation this morning. Knowing you haven't left us to our own devices in this world. You are active through your Holy Spirit. And so we come this morning expecting you to work. Expecting you to speak to us as we open your word, the Bible. As we pay attention to your word, we expect you to encourage us and also to teach us even to rebuke us and correct us and to train us in righteousness. So we bring our praise to you, the God who is high above all and also who reaches down to us in love. We come to you as the God who lovingly works in us to shape us slowly but surely into the image of your son Jesus. And we want to honor you in every way that we can. Amen. Let's stand to praise our God in song. a Bible. Uh, We're going to have a reading now from the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back. What we're going to read shows how the wonderful and the marvelous love of Jesus was displayed in practice as he submitted to an unjust death for you and me. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 27. If you're using one of the uh, Green church Bibles, that's page 998. I'm not sure if the page number in the larger print Bibles. it's Matthew 27 beginning to read at verse 11.
1: Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, "Are you the king of the Jews??" Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified.
0: Continue to praise the man of sorrows, Lamb of God. point I'm going to ask Grace Couchman if she'll join me up here at the front. We have this mic for you. So Grace, we won't be seeing you as much in the near future. Maybe you could tell us where you're going and what you're going to do.
1: So I'm going to Nottingham Trent University just um, to do Interior Architecture and Design. Um, it's a four-year course. Um, my third year is a sandwich year so it's a placement year.
0: Okay. And what are some things that we could be praying for you while you're gone and as you leave?
1: So my main one is settling in. So to my uni, to the church, to the CU and into my accommodation. Um, I have found my Christian union and I've found the church that I'll be going to. So it's more about just being able to fit in with everyone. Um, and then making friends with the people from my CU um, and from the people on my course and with the people that I'll be living with for the next year. Um, and then finding a job. with reasonable hours that will fit around my course. And obviously not being homesick and missing my family too much.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So we will be praying for you and I'm sure we'll get regular updates. But just uh, while you're still here, we're going to pray for you now and ask God to Help you, Father. You have promised, and never to leave us or forsake us, and we know that that applies not just to the places we might go to, but also to the whole course of our lives. As your people, there will never be a circumstance we have to face without you. We thank you for that truth, for that promise we have from you, and we bring that promise and remind you of it as we pray specifically now for grace this morning as she moves into a new situation at uni we ask you to remind her of your love and care for her remind her that you will be with her Pray that you'll give her assurance of that as she adjusts to a new place to live new people and a new course of study and we pray for the things that she has mentioned we pray for Uh, settling into a new church. We thank you that she's found uh, a church and we pray that she will soon feel at home there and uh, be able to make uh, good friends in the church. And also at the Christian Union, I pray that she will be blessed uh, through the Christian Union and also as she uh, participates and joins in there, that she will be a blessing to others. We pray for good friends there too and also on her course that she will soon find uh, people that she um, can have friendly faces when she goes to class. And we pray that you will help her with this course of study to adjust uh, to studying uh, away from home, that she'll be able to get the right balance. And we do ask that you'll help her to find an appropriate uh, job that fits around her course and doesn't uh, detract from her studies. We ask that Grace will grow in her faith while she's away. I pray that this will be a time of uh, moving forward with you, and I pray that she will also grow in her obedience to you in all areas of her life. We pray for Steve and Cheryl, for Abby, Emily, and Isaac, as they adjust to not having grace around all the time. We pray that you will give them assurance that you have grace in your hands and that you are with her. And we pray for us as a fellowship that we will be careful to remember grace in the weeks and months ahead and bring her to you in prayer. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Later in our service, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together and the Sunday school will be rejoining us for that time. But they're going to leave at this point to continue their time of worship next door. And as I said earlier, there's a crash available just uh, out those doors and immediately on your left if you need to use that for younger kids. We are turning this morning to the book of Deuteronomy. It has been a while, quite a few weeks, since we last turned to this book. So let's just take a moment to remember what we're dealing with here. The setting of the book is the east side of the Jordan River. Forty years previous to this, the Israelites left Egypt, and now finally they are camped beside the Jordan River, ready to cross the river, and take possession of the land of Canaan, the land God has promised to give them. But before they cross the river, Moses preaches a series of sermons to the people, sermons about what it means to love God and to live for God. Those sermons make up the book of Deuteronomy. Back in chapter 5, Moses reminded the people of the Ten Commandments, given to them 40 years before this. And now we're in a section of the book where he's showing what it will look like to put those commandments into practice. When we take the commandments seriously, we discover it impacts all of life. Living by the commandments is a way of life. And in his sermons, Moses shows the Israelites what it will mean for them in their time and place to live by the commandments of God. And as we read this book today, it's obvious that it's not going to look exactly the same for you and me to live out the commandments, because we don't live in the same time and place as the Israelites did. But as we listen to Moses, we are getting principles we can apply to our own situation as we seek to live by God's instruction. And here's one absolutely crucial thing we need to understand about the commandments. They were given by God. And when we look at them, we're looking at a window into the mind of God. God's instructions to his people are a reflection of his own mind and heart. His law tells us about his character. When we read this law, we should ask ourselves... What does this law tell us about the God who gave it? What kind of God would tell us not to murder or commit adultery or steal, for example? What kind of God would tell us those things? Well, a God who values life and loves faithfulness and celebrates honesty and respect for others. God's law tells us about his character. And it tells us about his character so that we, his people, can begin to become like him. Ed Welsh puts it like this. What God's law does is describe the character of the king so we can imitate him. Living by God's instruction is not some random thing that we just have to do because God said so. It's the way we become like our God. It's the way that our character becomes conformed to his. So with that in mind, let's turn to Deuteronomy. This morning we're going to read chapter 19. That's page 197 in the Green Church Bibles. And again, as we read this chapter, ask yourself, what is this showing me about the mind and heart of God? Moses says to the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan, chapter 19, verse 1, When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally, without malice aforethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. And as he swings his ax to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him, even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised an oath to your ancestors and gives you the whole land he promised them because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, And so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you received in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid. And never again will do such an evil thing. Never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. This is God's word. And having suggested that you read this passage asking yourself, what is this showing me about the mind and heart of God? I have to add, that final verse needs to be read in the context of the passage as a whole. And in fact, in the context of the whole Bible, if we're going to get an accurate insight into what it teaches about God's character. So let's put that last verse on ice for the moment, until we've taken in what comes before it. Look back to verse 1, which gives us the setting where the instruction of this chapter is to be carried out. Verse 1 says, when the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses. We know from earlier in the book, the place the Israelites are going to enter is a place where all kinds of detestable things have been going on. The Canaanite's way of life was evil in all sorts of ways. And that's why God is taking the land away from them and giving it to Israel. And when the Israelites move in, they are to live in ways that are different to what's gone on before. The place where God's people live is to be a different kind of place. It's to be a place that reflects the character of their God. And so the place of God's people is to be a place of justice. And that we're going to see that means it's to be a place of shelter for the innocent, a place of no shelter for the guilty, and it's to be a place where we are smart about the craftiness of sin. I said, the Israelites are to make Canaan a different kind of place. And verse 2 describes something very different from what went before. Moses says, set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. There are many things about Israel's way of life that were not new or unique in terms of what other nations did. For example, circumcision was not unique to Israel. Other nations practiced it too. God gave it a unique significance for Israel by designating it as the sign of his covenant with them, but the practice itself wasn't new to Israel. Here in verses 2 and 3, however, we have something that apparently was unique to Israel, Historians tell us there's no evidence of other ancient cultures having cities of refuge. Their existence in Israel would be a striking testimony to the character of these people and the character of the God who instructed them to set up the cities. Verse 3 says they're to be set up so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of them. That sounds like there to help murderers escape punishment. But Moses immediately clarifies in verse 4 that is not the case at all. In fact, the opposite is true. These cities will provide shelter for someone who, through no fault and no intention of their own, has been involved in a terrible, terrible accident where another person has lost their life. In verses 5 and 6, Moses gives an example. Two men go into the forest to cut wood, and as one of them swings his axe at a tree, the axe head flies off the handle and kills the other guy. A terrible accident. And it's an accident that could very easily produce two victims instead of just one. Why is that? Well, verse 6 says, The avenger of blood is liable to pursue the owner of the broken axe, and kill him in retaliation for the first death. Who is this avenger of blood? Well, literally, he's a redeemer of blood. We might be familiar with the word redeemer from other places in Scripture, like the book of Ruth, for example. In that situation, a man called Boaz had certain responsibilities to a widow called Naomi because he was a near relative of hers relatives were to step in and help when a family member was in need and it seems there was also a responsibility not only to provide for the family but also to bring wrongdoers to justice so in the example Moses uses here the man killed by the flying axe head may have left behind a wife and children and a near relative of the family a redeemer may take up their case in that situation And finding out who'd gone into the forest with the dead man, the Redeemer might not wait to iron out all the details of what actually happened. In his desire to sort things out, he might kill the owner of the axe and then ask questions later. That's the kind of situation where the cities of refuge come into play. An accidental death has occurred, and to prevent a second death, the unfortunate person who's still alive can flee to the nearest of the three cities and they'll be protected from harm. So the point here is that the place where God's people are is to be a place of shelter for the innocent. Now I understand that biblically none of us are innocent before God. We've all sinned. We'll come back to that later. But the Bible also recognizes we're not all guilty of every sin. There are situations where we can really say someone is innocent in that situation. And those who are innocent should find shelter among God's people. Shelter from those who would harm them. Can you see the application here for us? As the church of God... Maybe when we think of the word justice, the first thing that comes to mind is bringing punishment when wrong has been done. And that is an aspect of justice, as we'll see. But another primary aspect of justice is to protect those who are in danger of being harmed unjustly. Think of a wife in danger of being abused by a violent husband, for example. Think of children who are in that same kind of situation. Now, I know there are social services and there's other help available from the government. But surely we can say that as a church, as Christ's church, the church ought to be the first place someone in that kind of situation can run to and find shelter. Shouldn't it? Scripture leaves us in no doubt how much our God cares for the vulnerable. So surely whatever else we're about as a church, our arms and our doors must be open for the vulnerable to run to and find the safety and the support and the care that they need. Now it's true we cannot do everything, we cannot provide everything, Even in Israel, one city of refuge couldn't take in every person in need of shelter. There were three cities west of the Jordan. Earlier in the book, we learned that three other cities had already been designated east of the Jordan for the Israelites who were going to be living there. And here in our passage in verses 8 and 9, Moses says, as the Israelites grow in the land, there will be a need for more cities of refuge. One city or even three cities or even six cities won't be able to meet every need. And one church family can't meet every need. Other churches and other services have a part to play. But as we read about these cities of refuge in Israel, let's make the commitment that this church family will be a refuge and a shelter for the vulnerable. Let's never be open to the charge that we've turned our backs on those who run to us for shelter and help. Let's not be people who say it's not our problem. If we're going to be like our God, then we will have an openness and a concern for those in need. And look how verse 10 cranks up the significance of what we're talking about here. After the instruction about setting up cities of refuge, verse 10 says, do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. In other words, if you don't show this concern for the vulnerable, you will be guilty of bloodshed. Literally, blood will be upon you The Israelites couldn't say, well, we didn't actually harm the innocent person, so it's not our fault. Through Moses, God says, if you refuse to help them, it is your fault. As God's people who share his concern for justice, we have to be serious about our calling to provide shelter for the innocent. And equally, as we share God's concern for justice, we will provide no shelter for the guilty. Again, I know we're all guilty of sin, and the church is a place where guilty sinners come to find mercy and forgiveness in Christ. That's true, but that's not what we're talking about here. Look at verse 11. But... In other words, in contrast to what we've just been talking about, where someone dies in a terrible accident, if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. So now we're not talking about an accidental death. This is a case of deliberate murder. The killer planned to do what he did. And there is to be no shelter for him in any city of refuge. In fact, if he runs to a city of refuge, the authorities in that city are to send him back to his hometown. And there he's to receive the death penalty for murder. It seems that might be carried out by the avenger of blood, the redeemer of blood, the family member of the murdered person. But it's important to see this is not vigilante justice. It comes at the end of a proper investigation and trial. We said earlier, cities of refuge for the innocent were unknown anywhere else in the ancient world. But there was a practice where someone who ran into a temple would be safe from punishment, even if they were guilty. And in contrast to that, God says here, among my people, the guilty are not to be safe from the just punishment they deserve. My people are not to give that kind of protection to those who've done wrong. If you do that, you will be guilty along with the one who did wrong. In this case, you will share the guilt of the murderer who shed innocent blood. As people who share God's concern for justice, we will provide no shelter for the guilty. And I don't need to tell you that the church has often failed in this regard, and not just the Roman Catholic Church. The scandals in the Catholic Church have been well publicized where abuse has been hushed up, where abusers have been quietly moved on to a new place instead of being dealt with. But churches of all kinds have been guilty of covering up wrongdoing, protecting wrongdoers from the punishment they deserve. Even churches like ours have sometimes failed in their duty to bring sin into the open And let justice take its course. The church is a place where all kinds of sinners can find forgiveness in the eyes of God. But the church should never be a place where abusers are sheltered from the proper consequences of their sin. Whether those are legal consequences or something else. Like being relieved of responsibilities. The Bible says where that kind of shelter is given, we share in the guilt of the one who did the sin. So let's never think we're doing someone a favor by helping them hide from the law or from other necessary consequences. If we do that, we are not sharing our God's concern for those who suffer at the hands of abusers. Well, then, having set out some fairly straightforward instruction in verses 1 to 13, now our passage shows us these things are not always very straightforward in practice. It often takes a lot of careful work to sort out the rights and wrongs of a situation. Guilt and innocence are not always easy to figure out. And so, as people who share God's concern for justice... We will be smart about the craftiness of sin. Jesus called his disciples to be innocent as doves and also shrewd as snakes. And it's the shrewd as snakes bit that Moses is dealing with here. This third section of our passage is about the alertness and the discernment it takes to get to the truth of things. But when we come to verse 14, it might be hard to see how it fits with what we're talking about. Verse 14 says, "Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess." Did Moses accidentally cut and paste this from its proper place somewhere else in the book? No. This is here to show us people need to be protected from more than just murder or some other sort of physical abuse. The background to this is that when Israel takes possession of Canaan, the land is going to be divided up very carefully among the Israelites. Every tribe will be allotted territory. And within each tribe, every clan will be given territory. And within each clan, every family will be given will be allotted a piece of land of their own. And in the absence of the kind of land registry office that we have today, the boundaries where one person's land ended and another person's land started, those boundaries would be marked with either large stones or piles of smaller stones. And it's not hard to see how easily that arrangement could be abused. And the abuse of it was clearly a burning issue in Israel because it gets mentioned a surprising number of times in the Old Testament. Later on here in Deuteronomy in chapter 27, we read, cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone. The prophets reel against people who move boundary stones. They promise that God will pour out his wrath on people who do that. Why? Why? Why did the writers of Scripture get so worked up about it? Why did God get so worked up about it? Simply because messing with someone's boundary stone was messing with their ability to stay alive. People in Israel didn't have Tesco and Sainsbury's. They didn't have Lidl or Aldi or Morrison's either. People's food came from working their own land. So this issue about boundary stones isn't about having a decent lawn or a nice sprawling flower bed. Stealing someone's land was stealing their ability to provide for themselves and their family. There's a notorious example later in the Old Testament where King Ahab and his wife Jezebel steal land from a man called Naboth. We're told about that in 1 Kings chapter 21, and the chapters that follow. It wasn't that Ahab was facing any lack or shortage himself. He just wanted Naboth's little plot of land to use as an extra vegetable garden for himself. But the land was all Naboth had to survive on. And that's why the Bible and the God of the Bible were wrathful towards people who moved boundary stones. And it's mentioned here to show God's people, if you're going to share God's concern for justice, you need to be awake to the fact that injustice takes more forms than just murder and physical abuse. People need to be protected from more sly and sleek forms of injustice as well. They need to be protected from people who might never raise a hand to do violence, but who will engage in all sorts of underhand tactics to take advantage of the vulnerable. If we share God's concern for justice, we will give support and we will be advocates for people facing that kind of injustice too. Maybe we could think of an elderly person who's being cheated by a neighbor in some way. Or by a contractor who's overcharging them. Or by an online scammer who's preying on them. Or just a big company who actually owes that person some help, but who's fobbing them off, refusing to sort out their problem. Just hoping the vulnerable person will give up and accept the injustice, because they can't seem to overcome it. As a church, if we share God's concern for justice, we will be ready to help people in our church family with those sorts of issues. And in verses 15 to 21, we're brought to the nitty-gritty of trying to sort out issues of injustice, whether they're big or small. Verse 15 says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This principle is referred to often in the New Testament. Several times it's applied specifically to how disputes are to be dealt with in the church. It's not foolproof, of course, A moment ago, I mentioned Ahab and Jezebel doing a land grab on Naboth. Well, in the process of doing that, Jezebel herself produced two witnesses to say that Naboth had cursed God and the king. That was the justification for killing Naboth and taking away his land. But the writer of Kings tells us the two witnesses were scoundrels. They were making it up. So requiring two witnesses doesn't guarantee justice, but it's an attempt to avoid one person carrying out a personal vendetta against somebody else. And it shows that while God's people can never hope to get things right every single time, we just can't. But we're at least to make every effort to be smart about the craftiness of sin. And do what we can not to be outwitted by those who want to get away with sin. Verse 16 acknowledges sometimes there just won't be two witnesses. It will just be one person's word against another. In that case, everyone is to be reminded God is present. And he cannot be fooled. And then with that reality in mind, the priests are to investigate the situation as thoroughly as they can. I think where the NIV refers in verse 17 to the priests and the judges, it actually means the priests who are the judges in this case. The priests are to investigate as thoroughly as they can, remembering that God's eye is on the situation, and he does not want to see the innocent harmed or the guilty protected. And at this point, we might want to say, well, surely this only applies to the law courts. Surely this instruction is just for them. And of course, this is golden instruction for judges and juries, but it does have application for the church too. I've already mentioned that this passage is applied specifically in the New Testament to disputes within the church. Jesus quotes it in Matthew 18 as part of his instructions on how to respond when someone in the church sins. And in First Timothy chapter 5, Paul quotes this passage to show how the church is to deal with accusations against an elder. So there's an expectation in the New Testament that the church will work to settle its own disputes before they get as far as the court's. If the law of the land hasn't been broken, but someone has been wronged, the church has to be willing to try and sort things out. And that requires being smart about the craftiness of sin. It requires being aware that even as professing believers, we can do wrong to one another. And we can even be sneaky in the way we do it. And in all this, we also need to be aware how our affection and attachment to someone can blind us to what they've done wrong. When I was at secondary school, a teacher at my school was convicted of serial child abuse. And that teacher also happened to be a very well-known Christian who, over the years, had organized lots of great camps for boys. Camps where there was great Bible teaching, and there were lots of positive experiences. And because of all the great things that person had done, a Christian lady that I knew simply refused to believe that man could also have done some despicable things as well. She was partial to the abuser, to the extent that she wouldn't believe he was an abuser despite clear evidence to the contrary. And that is the kind of thing verse 21 is concerned to avoid. It's a very famous verse, and it often gets very bad press. Look at it again. After speaking about the need for thorough investigation of wrongdoing, verse 21 says, the verdict has been reached, the person is guilty, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. When critics of the Bible point to this verse, they say it's teaching people to respond with tit for tat, to get even. You punched my tooth out, so I'm going to do the same to you. And in response to that, Christians will often point out that actually this law is intended to limit punishment. The penalty has to fit the crime. So if someone knocks out your tooth, they shouldn't be killed for it. The penalty for the crime shouldn't exceed the crime itself. And that is true. This law does limit punishment. That is one of its intentions. But in the context here... That is not the main point of verse 21. You can see that if you notice the start of the verse. It begins with the words, show no pity. This verse is not about tit-for-tat vengeance, but nor is the focus here on limiting punishment. In this context, the focus is on being willing to do what needs to be done to deal with the sin. Why might God's people not be willing to do what needs to be done? Well, back in chapter 1 of this book, Moses explained why they might not be willing. He said, Hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. When it comes to dealing with sin, God's people are not to let personal affection or personal prejudice or personal interest get in the way. Israel needed to hear that. And we need to hear it. Because it's so natural for us to defend someone just because we like them. Because we love them or just because they contribute a lot to the church. A moment ago, I gave the example of a lady who refused to believe the truth about that teacher in my school. Had she been dealing with his case, she would have let personal affection lead her to show partiality in the situation. And on the other hand, it's easy to assume the worst about someone because we don't like them or because they don't seem very committed to the church. But even that is part of the craftiness of sin in our own hearts. We have to be smart about it. We have to do our best to make the church a place of shelter for the innocent and no shelter for the guilty. There's plenty of instruction in this passage for our attitudes and our actions as God's people. And it would be easy to think that's all there is to it when we read this chapter. But we started, I remember, by saying the instruction in this book teaches us about our God. And that's where we need to come back to as we finish. This passage shows us our God loves to see the innocent protected. Our God will not let sin go unpunished. But as we noticed earlier, none of us are truly innocent. We're not guilty in every situation, but ultimately we all have sinned and we all do sin. In an ultimate sense, none of us deserve God's shelter and protection. We all deserve to die the death of the guilty cast out of his presence and his protection but as we read on in scripture what we discover is the god behind this chapter the god who loves justice submitted himself to injustice for our sake god the son came as the perfectly innocent one if anyone deserved to be protected from death it was jesus But he went through the death that was due to a guilty man. He allowed his own innocent blood to be shed. And he did it so guilty men and women could run to God and find shelter from the punishment of their sin. In the life of Jesus Christ, the instruction of Deuteronomy 19 was turned on its head. We saw earlier when we read from Matthew 27, Jesus was convicted on false charges. They had nothing against him. He was convicted on false charges while Barabbas, a man who had been proven guilty, was allowed to go free. Mark's Gospel adds the information that Barabbas was a murderer. He deserved death. But Barabbas went free while Jesus picked up the cross, and died the death Barabbas deserved. The death you and I deserve too. So the message of the Bible is that the God of Deuteronomy 19, the God who loves justice, put himself through the worst injustice for your sake and mine. The cross was certainly a place where God's just punishment was poured out on sin. It was. But that punishment all fell on Jesus. So it wouldn't have to fall on us. And as we come to realize who he is and what he has done for us, we love him. We become more and more willing to live for him. To do what he asks of us, even when what he asks of us is hard. And the things we've read in this passage are hard. The more we realize what God has done for us, the less we can feel arrogant or superior. Even when we have to challenge sin and deal with sin in others. We deal with sin because God hates it not because we are better than anyone else. In a moment, we're going to share in this meal Jesus gave us, a meal that reminds us of his great love shown on the cross and his great salvation that was brought about through the cross. And as we prepare for this meal, we're going to remember together in song his sacrificial love for us. I'd ask you to join me in singing a song that picks up on so much of what we've said about Jesus and how it turns this passage on its head. My song is Love Unknown. Jesus laid in was the tomb you and I deserved, but his death opened up the way to life for us instead. So in these moments, let's remember his love, love that led the God who loves justice to suffer injustice for our sake. If you're trusting in Jesus as your savior Your only way to be in the right with God then uh, and also if you're seeking to live in obedience to him as a response to his love then this meal is for you we invite you to take the bread and wine but if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus if you're not clear about what we're talking about here then please just let the bread and wine pass you by today and please do ask me afterwards what does this mean i'm going to ask our servers if they'd come and distribute the bread representing jesus body broken for us the innocent dying for the guilty when you're served please keep the bread and we'll eat it together as a sign of our unity in christ As we eat together, let's remember, whatever consequences we might face in this life, in Christ, we have shelter from the eternal consequences of our sin. Let's eat together and remember. Now as the wine is distributed, again I'd ask you to keep the cup and we'll drink it together when everyone has been served. Let's drink together and give thanks for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Our last song celebrates the saving power of our Savior. There is a fountain filled with blood. Jesus, our Savior, is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. Let's recommit ourselves this week to trust Him and to live for Him. Amen.